Last time in talking about capital punishment, we looked primarily in the Old Testament, and we saw that the state and capital punishment was, were instituted at the same time. In fact, they were intricately uh, connected, uh, and we demonstrated that from Scripture. Uh, but there's always, of course, the um, criticism by those who do not favor capital punishment that we only get the validation for that from the Old Testament. And that Old Testament God is a bad God. He's a vicious God. That's not like the God in the New Testament. That's not like Jesus Christ. That's the kind of a thinking that we get. Well, this evening, I want to turn our attention to the New Testament and capital punishment. And let me begin by making a statement. It is this. The God of the New Testament manifested in the person of Jesus Christ has more to say about hell and the nature of its terrible eternal anguish than all of the writers of the New Testament combined. Did you get that? Jesus Christ, who's God, has more to say about hell and the eternal consequences than all of the New Testament writers combined. And remember, Jesus is also the one who gave John the message of the book of Revelation in which is described the lake of fire and the bottomless pit. Does that mean that Jesus is barbaric? Does this mean that Jesus is inhumane? Does this mean that Jesus is unloving? Most certainly not. It simply underlines the fact and the nature of divine holiness and love. Love and justice go together. One is just the other side of the other. Jesus clearly regarded capital punishment as a just penalty for murder. When he said to one of his disciples after he tried to kill a soldier who came to arrest him, remember what Jesus said, all who take the sword will perish by the sword. That's Jesus. What he's saying is here, if you kill, you will be killed. That's Jesus. He also recognized the death penalty for people who curse their parents. Remember, Jesus was under the Old Testament economy. Listen to his exact words as he quotes his father of the Old Testament in Matthew 15, verse 4. He says, for God said, now who is God? That's the God of the Old Testament. That's his father. For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. That's Jesus Christ. He does not overturn this penalty. He endorses it. Recall also when Jesus faced Pontius Pilate. Pilate said to him, Do you not know that I have power to crucify you? Which may be in paraphrase, Don't you know that I have the power to impose capital punishment upon you by killing you on a cross? Notice carefully now what Jesus said. Quote, you could have no power at all. What power? Power to impose capital punishment. You would have no power at all against me unless it has been granted to you from above. Jesus actually explains to Pilate that his use of the death penalty is a divinely entrusted responsibility that is to be justly implemented. It was given to him by God. 
He did not say to Pilate, you can't send me to the cross, I've come to do away with the death penalty. He didn't say that. By the way, that's what they like to say about the woman caught in adultery. And I already dealt with that before, I believe. That because Jesus pardoned the woman, he did away with the death penalty. You know, it's amazing to me how people make these statements. I mean, if you want to say anything about that, the only thing you could say is if he did it, which I don't think he did, is that he did away with the penalty for adultery. But not for murder. Besides, Jesus was no, in no position at the time to do away with any kind of penalty, legally speaking. You see. In fact, most scholars will tell you that what Jesus is probably saying to him, hey, when you come to a charge like this, you need someone to bring an accusation. That accusation isn't here. The person didn't come to condemn you. I cannot do it. I cannot. I wasn't an eyewitness. I can't do it. Nobody came, therefore you're free to go. That's all he was saying. But yet we have people coming here and saying that Jesus did away with the capital punishment because he forgave the woman. It's amazing how we misuse the word of God. I want you to listen to the last words of Jesus on capital punishment. They are found in the book of Revelation. I, this is a message that Jesus personally received from his father and then he communicated to the apostles through an angel. Listen to what Revelation says, 1-1. One, one. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice, it isn't the revelation of the apostle John. Revelation 1.1. 1, 1. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is what Jesus is revealing himself, which God gave to him. So I want you to see, God gave it to Jesus. Now Jesus shows it to his bond servants. What? The things which must shortly take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angels to his bond servant. So the message came from God to Jesus Christ, to John, to an angel. Now, Go over to chapter 13, the book of Revelation. See what God the Father gave, the message he gave to his son to communicate to John. Jesus is speaking through John. The book of Revelation should be written in red letters because it's the words of Jesus Christ. Jesus speaking to John says, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined to captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword, he must be killed. Revelation 13, verses 9 and 10. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, and with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. That's Jesus Christ speaking at the very end of his revelation to us. And so we could summarize. It is clear from Genesis to Revelation. Nowhere does the Bible repudiate capital punishment for murder. Nowhere. In fact, according to the book of Numbers, chapter 35, this is one crime in the Bible for which, under normal circumstances, apart from God stepping in through grace and mercy under those opportunities, but under normal circumstances, the Bible says there is no restitution for murder. Listen to the words. Numbers 35. You must never accept a ransom payment for the life of someone judged guilty of murder 
and subject to execution. You see this? This is the word of God, not the word of man. You must never accept a ransom payment for the life of someone judged guilty of murder and subject to execution. Murder must always, the murderers must always be put to death. And never accept a ransom payment from someone who has fled to a city of refuge, allowing a slayer to return to his property before the death of the high priest. Now notice this. This will ensure that the land where you live will not be polluted. For murder pollutes the land. It started with Cain and Abel. Your, the blood of your brother is crying from the ground. And no sacrifice. Listen carefully. No sacrifice except the execution of the murderer can purify the land for murder. That's the word of God and not the word of man. There's a principle here that we must not lose sight of. It has to do with man being made in the image of God and that God is the only one who can give anyone the right to take the life of anyone else made in his image. My friends, there's no more vivid illustration of this fact than the fact that God did not even intervene in the execution of capital punishment against his only son. Was he unloving? Because he didn't get to the Roman governor and say, hey, stop it. Do away with capital punishment. That's inhumane. That's barbaric. Did God do that? Even his son? was facing capital punishment? No. Friends, what you saw on Calvary, the execution by capital punishment there, was the highest and most wonderful demonstration of love ever manifested by God or man. And he did it to uphold the sacredness and dignity of human life made in his image, while at the same time executing perfect Justice, justice and love manifested at once through capital punishment. But now I want to turn to the classic passage in the New Testament that deals with capital punishment. Romans chapter 13, I encourage you to get your Bible and follow along. I want you to notice how the apostle begins this passage. He says, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. Now everyone means what? Surprisingly in the Greek, you know what it means? Everyone. Everyone. That means Christian and non-Christian. Just because you're Christian, don't free you from this obligation. When it says submit dear, that word does not mean simply a rigid mechanistic obedience, a legalistic type of thing, but it means to obey readily, to obey from the heart. Willing obedience. The phrase governing authorities refer to the government in power. Notice there's no reference to what kind of government, it's just government. Now, of course, it's taken for granted. That Paul is referring to obeying the laws of this land that are in keeping with the word and will of God. For the basic principle, as we all know, is that we should obey God rather than man when the laws of man conflicts with the law of God. But we must be willing to pay the consequences. 
right? That's taken for granted. So in this first phrase then, this first phrase of this passage, God commands the Christian to willingly obey the government and power at a given time. The reason is given in the next phrase. For, for, the reason, there is no authority except that which God has established. And that's quite a statement, isn't it? This is, the, this is an absolute statement. There is no authority. No authority anywhere other than allowed by God. Now, sometimes we question that. I know I question it. And if I didn't have this passage, I would really question it more. But that's what it says. There's no authority except that which God established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Simply put, Christians are to willingly obey the government in power because all human government is divinely established by God. This takes us right back to Genesis 9, the establishment of government. Now Paul is verifying that, validating that fact in the New Testament. Now, of course, government like is answerable to God for their governing. If they fail to carry out the divinely stipulated purpose for government, they too will face the judgment of God. Even as citizens will be facing the judgment of the state if they fail to obey the laws of the state. There's a law, there's, a, there's an order set up. There's an authority. You disobey, consequences. It's all through. That's just the way God has created this world. Notice now the logical conclusion for those who do not obey the laws of the land. Verse 2. Consequently, Paul is a lawyer here. He goes into detail. I mean, he explains everything. He's laying out a brief. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. Did you get that? He who rebels against the authority set up by God is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Inbuilt, automatic. It happens. If you don't follow God's law, God's principles, consequences follow. Just like that. Those who disobey the law of the land and show disregard for governmental authority are actually rebelling against God and will automatically bring judgment upon themselves. Now whose judgment is Paul referring to? Whose judgment is Paul referring to? It's not merely human government's judgment. It's divine judgment he's talking to about. The judgment of God himself. A very important principle is elucidated here. Here it is. Divine judgment administered through civil government is the natural result of breaking the laws of the land. And a major function of government is to administer that government, that judgment. That's the key. A major function of a well-established government is to administer judgment against lawbreakers in the name of God. Are you following this? Paul makes this very clear. Look at what he says in verse 3. Look at the Bible. For, 
reason. Rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. In other words, government, a government that functions properly is not to be feared or should not be feared by law-abiding citizens. It only should be feared by those who break the law. I want you to see it. Government, the authority set up by God, should be feared by the citizens, but only a certain part of them. Which part? The ones who break the law. They should be scared of government authority. Why? Because they are God's ministers of judgment. Listen carefully. Government is divinely established to administer justice in such a way that it deters its citizens from committing criminal acts, as well as to punish those who do. That's the meaning of the phrase in the words as whole terror. The government as designed by God is not to deter law-abiding citizens from keeping the law, but rather to deter them from breaking the law. Paul expands on this, the next verse. Notice what he says. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Let me put it this way. You want to be free from the fear of policemen? Then do what is right. And he will commend you. At least they should commend you. I just saw on TV the other day that one state is instituting a law. You know what it is? They can give tickets to people who go too slow on the highway. Now, I thought of this passage here. I scared of the law for obeying the law. Don't go over 50 miles an hour, so I go 40 and I get a ticket. What's up, mate? Too slow. Anyway, I think that's just a little by side thing. What he's saying in this, in this verse, do good, obey the law, and you won't have to be afraid of the government. Instead, it should actually commend you. Now, that doesn't mean that it will give you breaks, but simply that you won't have a need to be bothered by it because you are a law-abiding citizen. Simple. But then Paul goes on to explain the divine function of government. And by the way, that's what I'm trying to get you to see from this passage. Government's role in executing punishment. Paul explains the divine function of government from a positive perspective first. He says, for, reason again, he is God's servant to do you good. That's amazing. That word servant is the same word for minister or deacon. So God has two sets of ministers in the world. Two sets, the preachers and the policemen. Both are ministers, both are servants of God, but in different realms. For he is God's servants to do you good. That's what they're there for, to do us good, to protect us, and to punish those who do evil. Government is established as God's servant to do good for the citizens it serves. It does good by providing a peaceful and tranquil environment in which the citizens could live out their faith without fear. 
Paul makes this clear in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Listen to what God says here. I urge then, first of all, requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving made for everyone, for kings. Well, we could put in our context, prime ministers. And all those in authority. Why? That we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. As Christians, Paul is saying, we are to pray for our government, for the salvation for sure. He goes on to say that they might come to know the only mediator between God and man, the, Christ, the man Christ Jesus. But the point is here, the authorities are ultimately responsible for creating and maintaining peace and tranquility in our community. That's their responsibility. When they fail to do that, they're failing as a government. Because that's one of the primary purposes. It was established from Genesis 9. But Paul's point here in this passage is this. A major way of government doing good is administering appropriate judgment against evildoers including exercising, administering capital punishment. This is the negative aspect of government's function. Notice how Paul states it very clearly. He says, quote, But if you do wrong, be afraid. You see that? Be fearful if you do wrong. You don't suppose to have a good conscience when you break the law. You're supposed to be not able to sleep. Be afraid. Be looking around over your shoulder. The police come in. But you see, that only holds that if you're caught, you're going to be punished. If you know you're not going to be punished, you're not going to be afraid. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. The government does not have the right to execute punishment against the criminal, the lawbreaker. He has the right to exercise that power. He has not, he doesn't have the power for nothing. He has it for something. What is the something? Punishment. And here's the reason why. He's God's servant. I want you to see this. God's servant to do what? Execute judgment. Administer punishment upon the lawbreaker. That's what he's to do as God's servant. Now notice this. He is an agent of wrath. Not mercy. An agent of wrath. To bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Words cannot be clearer. Now there's several important things here. First. The laws of the land should be such that they cause would-be lawbreakers to be afraid of experiencing the consequences of breaking the law. Laws without teeth are, I was going to say teethless law, but they ain't got nothing behind it. You know, this is one of the things we talk about when we discipline children. Now, if you stay out 10 o'clock, you will never, never go in this car again. Child stays out till 12 o'clock. Next day, they have freedom to use the car again. No use threatening if you don't carry through with the threat. That's the principle. And it follows through way up here when it comes to capital punishment. 
The laws of the land should be such that they cause would-be lawbreakers to be afraid of experiencing the consequences of breaking the law. Now this has to do both with the penalty itself and the, ministering of the, the, and the administering of the penalty. The point, when I wrote this, I thought about something that one of the prime ministers said. I wonder if you're going to catch it. The point is not whether or not a punishment is light or not light. It's whether or not it is appropriate to the crime committed. You remember the statement of one of the prime ministers concerning that? About ministering punishment uh, because it is not liked by the people? That's not the point. It's not whether you like or not like a punishment. The punishment is to be administered if the law is broken, period. I mean, if we're going to base our discipline for our children on what they like, we will really have something. Secondly, God has given government the divine authority to execute judgment upon evildoers. This authority is meant to be used, not abused, not neglected, but used. If it's not used, it's abused. That's the meaning of the phrase, he does not bear the sword for nothing. Now the sword has always been a symbol of punishment in general, but especially for capital punishment in particular. The taking of a life for a life. That's what it means if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. The right and responsibility to use this authority is emphasized by Paul. Notice what he says. He is, that's, that's government, is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. God calls government his servant. And that is explained as being an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Notice, again, government is not God's minister of mercy or of grace. That's the church. But rather of divine wrath and judgment. Paul sees retribution as divine vengeance, not human. Again, those who oppose capital punishment always like to say it's vengeful, it's revenge. That's true. But it's not human vengeance. It's not human revenge. Listen to the word of God. Look at it in a moment, but let me make this point. Government is in reality God's appointed means of exercising his divine judgment against evildoers. This is not the prerogative of individual citizens. But rather it is the exclusive responsibility of the state or government. Paul states this very clearly in chapter 12 of the book of Romans. Turn to that passage and listen or follow as I read it. Romans chapter 12 and look at verse 17. We want you to see how Paul makes the uh, differentiation between the response of the individual believer and government to those who commit crime. 
He says, verse 12, or verse 17 of chapter 12, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. He's talking to individual believers. If it is possible, sometimes it ain't, but if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Notice now verse 19. Do not take revenge, my friend, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine, my prerogative to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with God. This is God's words to the individual. Paul very clearly, therefore, makes a distinction between the responsibility of the individual and that of God himself when it comes to exacting judgment for wrongdoing. Listen carefully. The believer is to forgive, not to exact vengeance for wrongdoing. God himself will take care of that. But in chapter 14, that we're looking at. Paul tells us that God uses government to exercise vengeance in the community. This is a divine solution to vigilantism. In other words, taking the law into your own hands. Leave that to those appointed to execute the law and judgment for it or punishment for it. You when somebody harms you, hurts you, even commits murder for a family member. Forgiveness on the part of the individual. But that's not the role of the state. The state is to execute God's vengeance and judgment upon that individual. The point is, God makes a distinction between retribution and vengeance. Retribution is the impersonal punishment by the state. Vengeance is always personal and very really proportionate to the crime. But the state's execution of retribution or vengeance is always impersonal and will be more than likely proportionate to the crime committed. In other words, those who oppose capital punishment on the basis that it violates the loving, forgiving, and compassionate character of Christ misses a major biblical distinction made in this passage. Capital punishment is not meant to be exercised by the individual citizens who is in fact to be loving, forgiving, and compassionate toward those who do him harm. But that's not true of the government. God has given them the right, the authority, and responsibility, and yes, obligation of exercising his divine, holy, just vengeance upon those who commit murder. And when they commit that murder, they show disdain, disrespect, and disregard for his image in man. And God says his vengeance must be executed. 
upon the criminal. It's something is amazing that's happening now in our land, at least it was. There seems to be a prevailing sentiment in the Bahamas that the government, both through its police force and through the process of administering justice, is failing to adequately protect its citizens and keep the peace. Everybody seems to have that feeling. If this is so, then our government is failing to fulfill its divine purpose as established by God. Clear as that. But why do Bahamians have such a perception today? Can it be because too many murderers are receiving mercy rather than justice? Or because more concern seems to be shown for the criminal than for the victim? Some time ago, Earl Stanley Gardner wrote a book, and this is what he said. Quote, the rights of the individual are being protected, provided the individual has committed a crime. We're going in that direction. It seems that everyone else and everything else other than the criminal is being blamed for the acts of the criminal today. Environment, school, parents, but not the individual who has a choice. It's almost as though they're machines programmed by things around them. No choice. Will the time come in our society when it will be more dangerous to be found innocent of a crime than be found guilty? Because innocence will constitute the greatest guilt? See, that's crazy. We're moving. That's happening in the United States right now. The government, through its law enforcement agency, including the courts and the police, are responsible for keeping the cap on criminal activity in our country. Notice what government is saying though. This is something for all of us. This is for the citizens. Now that is true. But the primary responsibility is still the government. We must not forget that. That's what they're there for. That's what God put them there for. They cannot pass off this responsibility to the citizens and be true to its divine calling as ministers or agents of God's wrath and vengeance. And they cannot be a truly human, humanitarian government unless they are agents who are fulfilling their purpose as designed by God. Citizens are to seek to live peacefully with all men and to forgive them of evil done against them. But this is not true, I repeat, of the government. They are to punish evildoers, not forgive them. They are to execute divine retribution against lawbreakers, including murderers. They are to use justifiable force to control criminal activity in our community. That's one of their fundamental reasons for being in existence. Doesn't that in itself tell us something is wrong with the way punishment is being administered today by our government? What deters others from committing crimes? It is not the threat of eventual, eventual punishment, but it is the observance or execution of actual punishment 
whenever and as soon as the criminal is caught and properly convicted. It is the act done speedily that deters. It is the speed and appropriateness and consistency of punishment that deters. Not the mere threat, not the mere law, but the carrying out of that law. Delay in punishment weakens deterrence. Paul then applies his teaching specifically to believers. This is what he says. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. He's talking to believers. In other words, believers have two incentives for be, being law-abiding citizens, too. To avoid punishment, just punishment. And secondly, to avoid having a bad conscience toward God for disobeying his word. So when we put this all together, here is our conclusions. First, let me put it this way. When the whole counsel of God is considered, it is clear that the primary function and reason for the existence of government is to protect law-abiding citizens by adequately and promptly punishing criminal elements in our society. And capital punishment is the ultimate symbol of the state's right, responsibility, and authority to protect its citizens. And to administer justice and to assure a peaceful society and maintain the sanctity and dignity of human life which reflects the image of God. These truths are consistent with teachings in both the Old and New Testaments as we have in the Bible. And so I say again, may God help us as Christians and as a supposedly Christian nation to be as consistent obeying the commands of the Bible as of the land. Here's what we can do as Christians. As a Christian citizen, we must pray for our government. We are commanded to do that. And we have no right to complain and criticize if we don't pray for them. Because that's our responsibility. That's our obligation. Yea, that's our privilege to pray for our government. This is perhaps one of the most vital but missing factors in what is happening in our society and impacts directly upon the effectiveness of the police and our legal systems. Christians must pray for our leaders, specifically and intelligently. And if you follow in, the first thing we pray for is the salvation of those who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior. As Christians, secondly, we must insist that government both speedily and judiciously administer punishment fitting the crime so that it protects law-abiding citizens by restraining criminals that are caught from continuing on in crime and deterring those who have not yet committed a criminal act from doing so in the first instance. We must insist that our government do this. Thirdly, as Christian ministers or those who have leadership uh, roles in our society, we must commit ourselves to serious and consistent formal and responsible study of scriptures in order for us to earn a respectful hearing from the public in general and have a meaningful impact upon the social direction of our country specifically. Because sometimes I'm embarrassed by what some of our ministers say when it comes to these things and the utilization of the Bible. I really am. Fourthly, and finally, we must become more active as Christian citizens in holding our elected respons representatives responsible for filling God's mandate to them 
rather than merely fulfilling their own personal political agenda. We have to stop asking, you going to bring me any harm this week, this month, this year? And find out what they're doing about carrying out the law and protecting the citizens. It is time that we cause our Bahamian Caesar, that's government, to realize that he has the answer to God as well. The same way we do. The Bible is clear, as far as I can see, on this matter of capital punishment then. It is divinely directed by God to be utilized by a well-established government for the protection of its people. If they fail to do it, then lawlessness will rule the land. We as the citizens, Christian citizens, need to do whatever we can do to bring this about where we will be able to enjoy a peaceful and tran tranquil life with all holiness. Let's be sure we do that. Sila, think and act on these things.